The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Today we're talking about what doesn't work, part two. In part one, Pete and I talked about conventional therapy, describing what that looks like since it's referred to in the research, but not clearly defined. We talked about how an eclectic approach to intervention appears to be the best way to guide survivors through recovery. We discussed the challenges around reading the research and deciding whether or not certain interventions or certain aspects of interventions actually work. And then we talked about stem cells and brain injury recovery. Pete mentioned his curiosity around certain word choices that the EBRSR uses and how he plans to ask Dr. T. Cell in an upcoming interview to clear that up for us. And then lastly, we talked about the lack of research on NDT, a highly thought of and frequently used intervention in stroke and brain injury recovery. Here's one for you. Acupuncture may not be helpful for improving functional ambulation, spasticity, and activities of daily living for the lower extremity. Again, we're still talking about lower extremity. Here's one that may not surprise you. NeuroAid may not be beneficial for improving stroke severity. Huh. That's, that's interesting. It, it made it in here, into the it, EBRSR. Yeah. How about this one? Stimulants may not be beneficial for improving motor function. Remember when stimulants were all the rage for people with brain injury because it was thought that they would somehow get better if they had, what's the big one for? Ritalin. Adderall. Ritalin. Yeah. Oh, Adderall. Yeah. Ritalin's the the one that I seem to remember somebody talking about a lot at the hospital. In brain, for brain injury recovery? I think so because it was, was pretty, it was a stroke center. How about this one? Have you ever heard of whole body vibration? Yeah. Yeah. 
Whole body vibration may not be beneficial for improving balance, functional ambulation, and muscle strength. How about them apples? How about them apples? Yeah. Is that going to come up again and what does work? That's a good question because I know for acupuncture, there are some things where it does work. Yeah, so I do you too. Can have that. You can have stuff that doesn't work for one thing but works for another. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we should have done a comparison. What does this intervention work for? What doesn't it work for? That is the third one. So we have okay. what doesn't work, what does work, and what's the comparison for things that do work and don't work, and when do they work and not work? This is yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Hey, Deb Battistel, how you doing? Hey, Pete Levine. Great. How are you? I'm doing good. Haven't seen you in, oh boy, like a half an hour or so. So no. here we are back at it. Part two of what doesn't work. All in right. Part one, we reviewed what? Stem cells and uh, some other things that came from the EBRSR that they thought were maybe not the best thing to do. And so now we're going to continue, if it's okay with you, with the upper extremity and what the EBRSR says about it. Sure. So one of the things that we talked about, and we had a whole episode about bilateral training, it turns out maybe we shouldn't have. I know. I was going to ask you about that. But I, I have a justification for still liking it. Okay. Hear me out. So first of all, let's see what they say. The literature is mixed. Remember there was can, may may not and then mixed and again we have to ask the fine folks at the ebrsr when they come on our podcast which they're going to what that all means and why they can't give us a like a numerical value maybe we should suggest that but we'll do it at the end of the podcast so they don't get angry with us so um in this case for bilateral training it says three things the literature is mixed regarding bilateral arm training for the upper limb rehabilitation following stroke second point bilateral arm training may not be beneficial compared to unilateral training for upper limb function it's this old debate that we had on here about should you go constraint induced therapy where you're focused only on the affected side or is it the jill whittle perspective uh who is the guru of everything's bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing that perspective where Everything you do in life is bilateral, so that's the way you should train. Then the third point is bilateral arm training in combination with other therapy approaches may not be beneficial for upper limb rehabilitation. Yeah. So what do we do with that? So two things. This kind of makes sense to me. We're going to have Dr. Teresa Jones from UT Austin on, and she's going to explain to us why going unilaterally is probably the best thing to do. Because she points out in these animal models that if you do compensatory movement early after the stroke, that you hurt future function of the affected side. So there's a competition going on in the brain. Okay. Look, okay, I'm the owner of the brain, let's say, and I want to do stuff. And to do that stuff, I have to do compensatory stuff with my less affected limb, with my stronger limb. That's what the brain's going to focus on. And I mentioned this before in one of the podcasts, if you do compensatory movement and the compensatory movement is done with the non-dominant, let's say left hand and arm, that left hand and arm, because it's been the non-dominant limb all that person's life, will get more coordinated than it's ever been in its entire life. And that makes sense because it's being, it's doing buttoning buttons, tying shoelaces, stuff it never had done before, certainly hadn't done unilaterally. The other thing that's weird about that is if you do 
unilateral training with the stronger non-dominant side, that side becomes more coordinated than the non-dominant side of people that haven't even had a brain injury. So it is very competitive in the brain. And it makes sense to me that doing bilateral training early would not be a good idea, maybe during the acute and subacute phase. However, going into the chronic phase, that's where there's this concept that when the strong and weak side work together, the weak side, the trajectory improves when it works bilaterally with the stronger side. The strength gets more powerful. The coordination goes up. The targeting gets better. Everything gets better. So I think that during the chronic phase, that may be when you want to incorporate bilateral training. It's a guess here. And I think what I'm learning from the EBRSR is nobody has the answers. It's the brain. And then on top of it, it's a brain that's not working correctly. So it's going to take a while to figure out. But it is interesting to take all these things into account. I agree. And I would say it's not really a guess. It sounds like clinical reasoning and action, which... I think is important to point out because it seems like some people in general and newer clinicians struggle with that. And the reason that you were able to come up with that conclusion is because of your years of work in the field and your ability to think. Well, maybe that's true, but what do you think? Are you still down with bilateral training or does this change your mind at all? Well, I read that too. And um, it planted some seeds of doubt in my mind. But the way that you are thinking about it makes sense to me. And we did talk about the whole facilitating learn non-use immediately following a stroke in our, I think it was our very first episode. And so um, based on everything that we're learning, it makes sense. The thing, so when I, when we first started um, talking about what doesn't work, in the last session, I said, I find this research thing very confusing and how do we know what to do? And one thing I do remember reading during this researching that this topic is that I think what makes it hard is that not all of the studies are done exactly the same. And so it makes it hard for them to um, compile the data for us. Yeah. And even in the bullet pointed things that are at the beginning of each module of the EBRSR, you can hear the struggle in the language. You know, we think, and that this may be why they're using terms like may, may not, and can, and all that stuff. With regard to bilateral training, I'm just not willing to let go of it. Um, and in the lower extremity, it's baked into ambulation. So we don't have to worry about it. It's there whether you like it or not. And you can't have somebody do unilateral stuff only. You have to incorporate bilateral training because it's part of ambulation. However, there is a form of constraint-induced therapy for the lower extremity, and I posted I posted a link to the protocol, I think, on the constraint-induced therapy program show notes. Um, but yeah, I, I would say generally speaking for the upper extremity, do the unilateral stuff while the penumbra is coming back online and, and the brain's trying to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up, and then... Uh, add bilateral training in the chronic phase, especially when you're trying to get nuanced, more coordinated movement, because that good side will in real time drive neuroplastic change and inform the weaker side in how to move. It'll teach it how to move. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we've clearly messed the whole thing up with bilateral training. Let's move on. The next thing. Well, Pete, it's wait, wait. I like going back to this, the bullet points at the beginning of the the EBRSR, like, we might have messed everything up. There's just a lot of stuff that's very non-committal. It's kind of depressing, isn't it? 
very depressing, especially when you're so excited. Like you had me do that activity, writing my name with both hands. It felt different. So I felt it myself. So, so I want to believe. Was that um, if you try to handwrite with your non-dominant hand, your left hand, it's uncoordinated. But if you do it at the same time in the same direction with your dominant side, it just feels better. And you actually write better if you put pens in there. So it seems compelling. I think we can have, we can have both things going on in our head. Maybe mm-hmm. something like constraint-induced therapy doesn't work with Mr. Jones, but with Mr. Smith, it works great, while the vice versa is true with bilateral training or mirror therapy or a myriad of other things that you can bring to bear for recovery. Yes. A couple of quick hits from the EBRSR. This is going to be depress us even more. The okay. literature is mixed regarding use in the upper extremity with music therapy, tele-rehabilitation, arm shoulder robotics. So the tele-rehab really depressed me. You saw that too, huh? I did. Huh? <laughs> I, yeah. It is depressing, especially in the, in the times of COVID, our, of our little friend, COVID. Yeah. Because, you know, now what do we do? We can't reach out to patients. They don't want to come in. They're frightened for good reason. Well, I don't think we should give up on it. No, we, we shouldn't. It's a connection with people. Absolutely. And uh, our lab did a study with the Bioness H200. And, you know, the thing about Cincinnati is we sort of border rural Appalachia. And so we had people in rural Appalachia, we gave them the H200, the upper extremity Bioness orthotic and a laptop. And we did it remotely tele-rehab. It was one of the first studies in tele-rehab. And my whole job was to sit behind the occupational therapists that were talking to the patients and troubleshoot issues with the H200 and with them having to deal with um, a computer that they kind of didn't really understand. This was early days. This was probably 2000, I want to say four or something like that. So how are you going to reach those people? Tele-rehab is one of the only ways to do that. So I, th- I think it, I agree with you. It holds great promise. Yeah. Well, the music therapy kind of surprised me. And so I did look at the music therapy notes. You know, I, I'm going to go there now. And I like the way they do these boxes with red, yellow, and green. And so... So the boxes, red, yellow, and green. Green is the highest level of evidence. It means you're probably okay. Yellow is... Eh, and red is maybe not so much. Yeah. This is all in the EBRSR. Yes. It's a great document to have at your fingertips. And it, it's green for range of motion. So it may produce greater improvements in range of motion than conventional therapy, task-oriented like therapy, and sham. Therapy? Music therapy, yeah. Because we, we talked about using the metronome too, which is a sound. I know that's different than music therapy, but people are naturally inclined to music, right? We talked about the guy that was asleep for weeks in the ICU and we sat him up at the edge of the bed, turned the music on and he started tapping his foot. And then he started, then he went back to being a conductor. He did. Super I cool. that guy. Yeah. I feel like I know him. His name is Tom. Uh, 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 dead bad it's- Tom was on the news, Pete. Yeah, but okay, no last names and you're off. I don't know his last name. Okay, well, that's good that you don't because I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. All right, that's okay. So what else you got uh, on the EBRSR that's jumping out at you? I got a couple other things, but and remember, oh. don't talk about things that work because that's going to be a whole different episode. I know. 
I can't help it. Uh, it was the orthotics. Orthotics. I saw that orthotics may not be beneficial for upper limb rehabilitation following stroke. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. So there's that. So I wonder how are they looking at rehabilitation? I, we probably need to know the questions that were asked and yeah, what and they were looking at. What are they at. calling orthotics? For that point. Exactly. But yeah. Still, it's oh, sort I of just interesting. smacked my lips. Take that out of there. A li- did you do some lip smacking? I did some lip smacking. Was it like? <laughs> it was an accident. I <laughs> found a hair in my mouth a minute ago, so I don't know what's going on. <laughs> it's good that it's tele rehab. We'd be spitting up all over each other. Um, I saw one in EBRSR that kind of freaked me out. It's not our thing. It's on, on the medical side, but steroid injections may not be beneficial for upper limb rehab following stroke. And uh, I find that weird because steroids are what athletes do. And you would think that that would help, but maybe not. Hmm. And a Facebook group, somebody was asking about constraint-induced therapy. And it was mentioned possibly that it could, you know all of the phases following stroke that it would be beneficial for. And this modified constraint-induced therapy may not be beneficial for upper limb rehabilitation in the subacute acute phase following stroke. And I thought we established that it's too intensive. Well, my feeling had always been that during the acute phase, broadly the first seven days, it was too intensive and that you can make the infarct worse with stuff that's really intensive. Subacute, you know, if I had a stroke, I would want some forced use constraint-induced therapy during the subacute phase. Maybe not zero to 60 intensively, but I would want it so that the brain can re-engage those neurons coming off the penumbra mm-hmm. into what they had been doing for all their previous life, previous to the brain injury. Yeah. But you know, I think all of this proves that everything's a work in progress and research, you know, like with COVID, Anthony Fauci was saying don't wear masks. And then he was saying, do wear masks. That's what science does. It it reacts and it's amorphous and people don't like it, but that's the way it is. So right now, maybe we should recalibrate when we do constraint-induced therapy. And maybe it is too intensive early. But again, isn't it interesting? It all comes down to a thinking clinician or a thinking clinician and a caregiver, along with a really smart survivor because those exist too and they come together and they think of a plan and you get this kind of cooking of the soup a variety of ingredients that can help that person and then if something isn't working do measure enough so that you know that it's not working and then you can take a left turn and go after something else because there are other options yeah pay attention absolutely We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and whether or not people donate, are able to donate, 
We appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? That's true. Um, And we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at neurons. At neurons. That's pretty simple. It is. And it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. That's true. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. So I got another story for you, or did you want to stick with the EBRSR for a little while longer? Tell me a story. Tell us all a story, Pete. I like story time. Well, kids, sit back, get your pillows, lay down and get ready for a nap, because I'm going to tell you a story about a company that stole the name of my blog, pissed me off so much that I ended up doing some research on them and finding out that they were scamming a vulnerable population of stroke survivors. So this should help you sleep well at night, kids. Okay, so here we go. NeuroAid. So when I first wrote my book, it was weird. It's it's published by Springer, which is a big publishing house, but it's it's a division of it called Demos Health and had tape bound it and and I was selling it. I had like remember Kinkos, you could like make a book out of anything. And I had tape bound it and I was selling it at seminars and I was selling it, I was making a lot of money off of it. I would sell it for like 30 bucks and it cost me five bucks to make. So it was great. Then I wrote a couple of emails to some publishers, real publishers, and one of them bit this Springer company called Demos. It was weird. My, my first editor who did the first two editions was a stroke survivor. And I think she immediately saw the why this book was kind of important that you would you know, show everybody in layman's terms you know, what neuroscience has to offer for people that are trying to recover. And one of the things that she did early on is she said, you should really start a blog. I was like, a blog, really? I mean, I'm still working on the finalizing the book. Well, first of all, it'll help sell the book. And second of all, it'll help you flesh out ideas for any future editions. So I did it. And I called it, I didn't want to call it the name of the book. So I called it the Stroke Recovery Blog. So great. And it kind of did really well. It was early days. It came out like started in 2006 or something. And there was nothing else really like it on online. So I got a lot, you know, a lot of interest and, and it was great. Um, a couple of years later, two or three years later, another blog, com- another blog is launched and it's called the Stroke Recovery Blog. I'm like, they stole the name of my blog. What the heck? It reminds me of, um, you ever see Finding Nemo and um, 
and Nemo's father is trying to find Nemo and he's following, you know, Ellen DeGeneres, who's brilliant in this movie as she's going around the ocean and she says, Oh, I, I know who that is. Follow me. And then she forgets everything. So she forgets that he's following her. So he, she finally turns around to him and she goes, why are you following me? What is the ocean not big enough or something? It was kind of like that. You couldn't come up with any other title for your blog except the stroke recovery blog, but it was clear what they were trying to do. There was like, you know, we'll call it the same as this other popular blog. And then when people try to find that blog, they find our blog. It is a great marketing scheme. So I went to the blog and it was, it, it presented as a blog, you know, five things that you could do to recover from stroke, eight things that will help you with spasticity. And it was all this, you know, typical stuff. And then, but it was very clearly trying to sell this drug called NeuroAid. And it was very, very slick. There was clearly money behind it. It turns out that it was run by a company called Moliac, which is a French company, a French pharmaceutical company. And they were selling this stuff that was supposed to help people with stroke. This is a vulnerable population. They had a pill and they were going to say that it helped you recover from stroke. It's insane. So I had never heard of NeuroAid before, except I had heard of it because your friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Page, had written a very uncharacteristic email to our entire team. He included physiatrists, neurologists, everybody up and down. And it was bitingly sarcastic. It was kind of out of character for him. But this is what the, and I dug up the email the other day. This is what he said Colleagues, it looks like millions of lives will be restored. How absent-minded of me to tell patients that there is no magic bullet for all these years. And shame on you, therapists and physicians, for not giving your patients NeuroAid. Thank goodness for NeuroAid. So it's like really like this thing. So then I remembered that's the stuff. So so then I went and looked at it. And it turned out that one of the people on their advisory board, and I'm going to link to this whole blog entry. It's my most um, popular blog entry. About 26,000 people have read it or at least looked at it because everybody's interested. They go, NeuroAid, does it work? Is it a scam? They find my website, says it's a scam. So anyway, there was somebody on their on Moliac's advisory board who was also running the research. So it was a clear and crazy, obvious conflict of interest. Uh, There were other problems. They had this outcome measure that I had never heard of. And my thing was outcome measures and it was for stroke. And they didn't use the Fugelmeyer, the action research arm test or the arm motor ability test or the stream or any of the ones that I had heard of. They used this other one. It actually had the word apoplexy in the title. It was crazy. And the only thing I could find about this outcome measure that they used to prove that their neuro aid worked was this outcome measure. And the only information I could find out about the outcome measure brought me right back to their study. It was like they came up with their own outcome measure to prove that their own medication worked. It turns out that neuro aid is made from 12 different Chinese herbs plus extracts of leech and scorpion. Mm-hmm. And they're probably because I got a lot of response from this NeuroAid um, blog entry, I got a lot of stroke survivors coming on and telling me everything that they had learned about it. And again, you know, a lot of people that have had brain injury are really smart and they have a lot to offer and they're like, they're trying to figure this stuff out. So um, one guy wrote that they're uh, available in any, you know, any major city in the United States has a Chinese herbal store, right? New York, they're festooned in, in Manhattan. They're all over the place. And you can buy all of these 
in these stores. You can also buy them online. For instance, there's an herb called Stroke Away, and I'm going to link to all of these things. It's really the same configuration. It's just called Stroke Away, and it's much, much cheaper. If you were to buy those herbs separately, they would cost you about a dollar. The cost of NeuroAid is for the standard three-month treatment is $1,346, but that does include shipping. So that's good news. Oh, that's yeah. good. Yeah. One month treatment is about $488. So I just did a quick Google search while you were chatting. Yes, ma'am. Apparently, there's a case report here about NeuroAid 2 in hemorrhagic stroke. Yeah, there's going to be yeah. all kinds of research. They're going to make sure that there's stuff sure. out there. This is fascinating. Statement of ethics. Hmm. Here's the weird thing, though. They ended up dropping the name Stroke Recovery Blog. So the thing that pissed me off about them initially, they dropped, and now they have launched this new website, and now it's NeuroAid 2. It's almost like they're mm. trying to distance themselves from their previous work. Yeah. It was interesting. Well, anyway. Sorry, they stole your stuff. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. It was a good journey. Yeah. Sounds like you got people talking. That's too. always good. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to talk about next? So I would like to go back to the EBRSR and talk about the lower extremity. We did the upper extremity. Maybe maybe we should give equal time to the lower extremity. Maybe we should. You know, you asked something the other day or you said something like, you know, I don't know why so many of these studies are done in the upper extremity. And I, I thought about that and I actually think I know the reason. So here's my hypothesis. So let's say you're going to do something that involves actually touching the brain, like transcranial magnetic stimulation, or these two very nice OTs that we're going to have on our show that work at NeuroHub in Orlando. Um, They have this new interface that uses EEG, electroencephalogram. So they're going to use that tool to then activate eSTEM once there's an intention perceived by the computer that kind of thing. And we're going to talk to them about that. So we learn more about that. And you talked about it, um, that brain muscle interface in a previous podcast. One of the things that is true about the the brain is that the homunculus, the hand is right here. I mean, it's incredibly available. When you're doing transcranial magnetic stimulation, where you are able to stimulate the brain right through the skull non-painfully, it's easy to just hit that part. Like literally, if you're standing up and the person's sitting down, that's the part you're on. The leg though is way down between the two hemispheres. So all of that technology, it's hard to get down there. And, uh, and so that's one thing. The other thing is that the, the hand takes up so much of the brain and it's so complicated. There's each finger has what? You got the MCP and the PIP and the DIP. You got like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And that's just joints in the fingers. I mean, it's a crazy amount of stuff. And this is why it takes up so much brain. And this is why I suggest to people that if you want to engage the brain, engage the hands. If you want the arm to get better, engage the hands if you can. It's one of the, the, the reasons that things like the H200 and the Saboflex are so powerful is because they engage the hand immediately. And that's just a huge swath of the brain. The other thing about the hand is that we in research think that if we can figure out the hand, everything else is going to be easy. Constraint-induced therapy, if you look at it, it started in the four limbs of monkeys with Ed Taub. Then somebody that we 
learned about. David Ince in one of the uh, physiatrists who was the first to do it in humans, did it in the upper extremities. And they did it for years in the upper extremities, upper extremities. That's what we want to figure out. Then they went to the lower extremities. All of this good stuff happens in the upper extremity first and then the lower extremity. Now, the other thing that takes up a lot of room on the homunculus is the mouth. And in humans, like if you look at the homunculus, that's the point-to-point represent the mapping of the brain for movement and sensation. If you look at the homunculus of an animal, the mouth is about the right size for the size of the head. But in humans, the homunculus, when you blow it up on all sides, the mouth is ginormous. And it's not ginormous because we eat a lot of chocolate. It's ginormous because we speak. So the other big thing in the brain is the mouth because of speech. But the thing is, it's a lot easier to take the hand and do stuff with it than it is the mouth. There's all kinds of problems with the mouth. And what are you going to do? Have them swallow and then their speech things. And I don't know. I think it just made more sense to researchers to go after the hand first. I just talked a lot. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Deb, I can see Deb's face. She's just like, what? Well, <laughs> I don't even know what no, to do with that. It, well, I'm going to a couple of places here. So first of all, it sounds like a wonderful theory that you have, but I wonder if your anthropology questions would come into play here somewhere. Well, you're the anthropologist. What are you talking about? So you're the one who's always talking about the monkeys and the bipedal and quadrupeds versus quadrupeds bi- and bipeds, yeah. bipedal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so how do you how do you put those two together? Let me see. I don't know. Just how you are, how your brain. That's that's when the hand got important. When we we went bipedal, and then all of a sudden we could carry things and, and manufacture things. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, the term manufacturer has the prefix of manu it's manual it's mano in italian it's mano it's hand it's the hand the other thing that i think is interesting is that all of this research has occurred on the arm and then when you meet a person who's had a stroke they don't care about that they just want to walk they just want to walk until they realize how important the hand is well it's like the old joke about the 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 hand Uh, i don't need that hand i got another one And then we get back to compensatory movement where in the lower extremity, you need both of them to walk. The other thing about, you know, there's this whole canard that I hate when things get into therapist's head and they won't leave, you know, proximal distal control, for instance, that's that's not always true. The other thing is that the leg comes back before the, the arm and the hand. That's not true. What happens is the leg has much less cortical, you know, equations this has to go through to come back in the first place. Second of all, you got the AFO. So the one thing that's really hard, you you eliminate with this piece of plastic on their leg. The other thing is you have an assistive device. You don't have any of those things for the upper extremity until you get into things like the Saboflex and the H200 and some other orthotics and stuff. Hey Pete, you know what's great about podcasts? Well, a lot of things, you have a world of different options. You can fast forward through stuff you don't like, and it's all on your phone, so you can listen to it while you're driving or exercising or doing chores around the house. Well, that stuff is pretty cool, but that's not the most important thing. Wait, what do you think is the most important thing? 
fact that when you listen to the radio, all you get are ads. Even NPR shuts down for it seems like weeks to beg for money. Uh, uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. Uh Uh-oh, what? We're about to do the same thing. You know how much work we put into this. The research, the endless technology hoops that we have to jump through, the websites, the equipment, the editing. We just need a little help. Well, how can people help? Through Venmo. We have a Venmo account, and any little bit will help. Our Venmo address is at neurons because of course it is at neurons how much do you think people should give about a million dollars come on okay like five hundred dollars are you serious fifty dollars let's just put it this way every little bit helps if you want to support noggins and neurons effort to simplify the best of neuroscience and rehab science for brain injury recovery then one million dollars to add neurons and here's some good news 20 percent of everything we get will go to the brain injury association of america which helps individuals who've had a brain injury family caregivers and the professionals who help create a better future through medical research and treatment So one of the things that I found in my search that has nothing to do with what you're talking about other than the proximal to distal myth. Yes, ma'am. I found research that talks about kind of where it came from. I think it came from Margaret Rood, who was a PT and an OT. And she was one of the 100 most influential people in occupational therapy. And so research was done on her theoretical framework and a part of that was disproven is that a word disproven yeah it's a word i think it's a word Deb. okay great, That's great. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't sound right yeah and so one of one of the principles from her theory is that recovery follows the ontogenic developmental sequence and according to developmental studies relearning of movement does not occur from proximal to distal which is what she said It always emerges from a sequence of interactions between inherited tendencies and experience-dependent learning. So that's in alignment with what you say. So we need to right now kind of let that proximal to distal thing go. First of all, you got to send me that. I can put that on your to-do list, put it in the show notes, but also send it to me. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I would go even further And maybe this is going to, maybe you won't agree with this, but you know, this obsession that therapists have with the trunk, you know, you got to have trunk control. It's, you know, you got to have the trunk. And my thing about the trunk is like, if you have an infant and it, it actually goes to something from the EBRSR, actually, let me tie this into the next point I want to make about the EBRSR. Thank you. So, Again, we're with can, may, may not mixed. Trunk training may not be beneficial for improving gait or lower limb rehabilitation after stroke. And this one doesn't surprise me very much. A lot of therapists get hung up 
on these rules that they learned in school that were taught to them by other people who learned them in school. And they end up being 40, 50 years old. And even they were never really well tested, partly because we didn't have brain scanning technologies. We didn't even have good kinematics. You know, in the 90s, what they used to do for kinematics, if you want to measure like how much a joint was moving or whatever, now we do it in a human performance lab and we put reflective markers, we have infrared cameras and it picks up very stick figure and mathematical formulations. Back then, what they did, the new technology was, was a camcorder. And they take this videotape of this person walking, and then they would take a goniometer and they would put it up against the curved screen of the TV. Because remember, they were all curved screens back in the day. And they would take the goniometer and they go, okay, bring it up to 54 seconds. And they would go, they bring it up to 54 seconds. They measure that joint angle. Okay, 55 seconds. They measure that joint angle. And that was kinematics to them. So we didn't have a lot of ways to test. Bobath could say something, but there was no way to test them. It took somebody extraordinary like Singer Brunstrom to come up with a re- legitimate outcome measure that they could then use. The infant's sitting on the floor and it doesn't know what it's supposed to do. So it reaches out for a bright, shiny object. Now, it topples over because it doesn't have the trunk control, but it's learning trunk control. It just wants the shiny object. And so it goes after it again and again through repetitive practice. You have successes, you have failures, you build on the successes, you try to eliminate the failures. And over time, they learn how to use the trunk. So the hand, the intention of the individual is what drives cortical change. And that becomes the expression of the hand. And once again, we're back at the hand expressing itself in some way and then dragging the rest of the body with it. So for the trunk, it is important though for sitting balance and postural control. And you know, if your shoulders are back and your head can be up, then you can see the environment around you. If you're kyphotic, you're kind of looking at the floor and it's hard. Like so if we're talking about it that way, are you in agreement that like postural control is important? It is really important. So here's the thing. We always talk about the mind and the brain. The mind is you. Who do you love? What are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to learn? You. It's the person. The brain is just the machine that carries out what the mind wants. All I'm saying is you're putting the cart before the horse if you don't understand the intention of the human. And infants are a great example because they don't know what's going on. They just want the shiny object. And they're working on trunk control without knowing it. Let the intention drive the brain. I think that's pretty much what I want to say. But yeah, trunk control is great. And you know, if you want to work on trunk control first, I would say that you can do both at the same time. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know, from my perspective, anytime I've ever been working with somebody, it's like I'm working on multiple things at one time. It's just a lot funner to reach for something that you want to reach for than saying, let's do trunk control or, mm-hmm. you know, and take this abstraction. And then the patient may not understand what you're doing. And I don't know. So look, there's all kinds of good therapists that do all kinds of good things. And I think what we're learning today more than anything is that an eclectic approach is probably the best way to do it. And this therapist, this is why you're getting paid the big bucks to cook the soup. Yes, that's true. I, I got one for you from the EBRSR, and I bet you're not going to disagree with this one. Cycle ergometry or cycle ergometer oh. training may not be beneficial for improving functional ambulation. Really? What a shock. Huh. Why would it? Like, what were they thinking there? Who did that study? You know, maybe they think it's bilateral training to help with arm swing or something. I don't know what that was about. 
Well, can we stay there for a minute? Because remember how I talked about the Choosing Wisely campaign? Yeah, remind me what that was. And I remember it had something to do with how ergometers are just like not very functional and not very helpful in recovery. Don't provide intervention activities that are non-purposeful. For example, cones, pegs, shoulder arc, arm bike. So that's from the Choosing Wisely campaign. And I will... I'll add that to the show notes too. So this is some sort of occupational therapy thing that we don't have access to, but you occupational therapists do. Yeah, I'm surprised that the APTA hasn't joined with that because it's a whole campaign. It's it's all professions can be a part of it. So I'm a little the general gestalt of it. Like, what are they? It's their overarching message. The point is so that healthcare providers aren't providing interventions that aren't necessary and so that services aren't duplicated. It really is a campaign to serve patients in the best way possible. And the American Occupational Therapy Association decided to participate. So may I ask, how would a cycle ergometer or a pegboard replicate stuff that was already being done by another clinician or by that clinician? Like how does how those two go together? I don't I don't think I understand the question. So pegboards were considered not great to go to. Yeah. And they're not purposeful. People don't, most adults that I know don't wake up in a day and say, well, I think I'll get the pegboard out, you know? Um, So here's an example. You know that I broke my wrist a couple of years ago and I was at the ortho office and they had all of these paper snowflakes cut out, hanging up on the desk. And I was very excited because I knew they had occupational therapy there. And I said, did the occupational therapy have team make these? Did they have their their patients make these? And the, the nurses said, no, we made them. So for a person who likes crafts, doing something crafty would be meaningful or purposeful. And um, in, in many hand therapy clinics that you don't find that. So I discharged myself a little early from hand therapy because I could do the stuff at home. And what was the name of the program again? It was the it's uh, Choosing Wisely campaign. And really the overarching message is that you should look to things that are not just functional, but important to what you guys call clients, I guess. We call them patients. Well, we're trying to move away from that model because... Um, that language keeps the healthcare provider knowing more, like just a different perspective. Talking about patient versus client. Yeah, that's all. And you think you think calling them a patient is kind of separates them from the clinician? Yeah, some in some instances, it keeps them less involved. I see. Less client centered than client centered. Okay. Yeah, client centered care. Um. But occupational therapy is all about engaging people in occupations and using occupations or activities that are meaningful to a person to drive that change in them. So using it, using occupations as a means and as an end. So we've come full circle now and we're back to the mind and the brain and the intentional will of the person and let that drive things. All right. I got another one from the lower extremity EBRSR. How about this one? 
botulinum toxin or Botox may not be beneficial for improving gait. Isn't that interesting? There's conflicting evidence about the effect of botulinum toxin. Remember that Botox is denatured botulinum toxin to improve gait when compared to a placebo. Wow. So you have to understand. So what they're doing is they're measuring gait kinematically, go to human performance lab. They administer Botox probably to the gastroc and to some, the inverters at the foot and maybe up the thigh somewhere. And then they're seeing if they walk better after the Botox takes hold. And as I'm sure, you know, Botox takes a few days to get into the muscle. It's not immediate. And, and it takes time to kind of understand how to use your new Botox muscles, right? I've heard of people getting Botoxed. They're at home. All of a sudden, the Botox kicks in and they fall because that spasticity they leaned on isn't there. So what they're looking at in these studies is they're looking at, does Botox immediately improve quality of gait? And they just can't find it there. What I would like to see and maybe this study has been done and I need to dig more, but what you want from Botox is you want it to give you a window of opportunity to reestablish something kinematically, to, to reestablish some sort of movement that you couldn't work on because the spasticity was so profound. And then when the Botox wears off, you have this newfound movement. That's the study I'd like to see, but understand that these studies, and uh, they looked at four studies from 2003, 2012, 2015, 2019, and they just said when they did it immediately, and once the Botox got into the, the muscle, it didn't seem to help ambulation. Kind of surprising. It is kind of surprising. Well, and this is why research is important, because we do have these ideas and thoughts about the way it seems like things would work out, but the numbers don't lie. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple more for the lower extremity. Exoskeleton okay. systems may not be beneficial for improving motor function, functional ambulation, functional mobility, balance, activities, daily living, and muscle strength in the lower extremity. Do you know what, what that is? That's the locomat. The locomat is $300,000. You know what you can do for $300,000? You can buy a supercar for $300,000. The walkbot, the hybrid assistive limb, the HAL, the auto ambulator, all these things that a few years ago we thought were great, maybe not so much. So these are things that take them through the gait cycle and provide active assistive to active to resistive training during ambulation. They're very expensive. A lot of the big clinics have them. They draw a lot of patients in because people go, I got to have that thing. It may not be that effective. Wow. And didn't you say at one point that those harness systems are, are beneficial because people, they're supported and then they can move their legs? Yeah, it gives them, so it's, it hangs them up from a rack that's above their head with what looks like a parachute harness that comes between their legs and under their pelvis. So if they fall, they don't fall. So you can have them work on speed dependent treadmill training, get them to walk faster. That's one thing. But there was a, did you have something else you wanted to ask about that? Well, I was just thinking the way that I do is because they're actively moving. Yes. That's why it's effective. And this thing is more passive. These auto ambulators, the um, locomat, uh, all these technologies bring them through sort of passively. 
And it's like, well, what are you, what are you doing there? Now we're back to passive range of motion is going to drive something. But the brain needs the body to move, correct? There has to be active movement in order for change to occur. Yes. And I'm not super familiar with this technology because I was never a big fan of really expensive technology, kind of like Ramachandran. It's just like too complicated. No, but, but I bet there's stuff on there that allows a more natural walking gait. And then there's probably some advantages to it. The thing is though, that's different from the light gate, which is the one that you're talking about where they're harnessed. Mm. However, the largest trial in the lower extremity in the history of mankind was run by, a, I would like to call her a friend, Catherine Sullivan, and then a very, another very well-known researcher in rehab for the lower extremity for stroke, Pam Duncan. And the, it was called the LEAPS trial. And the LEAPS trial showed that, remember when, if they're harnessed and they had this thing where the therapist would crouch down towards the affected side and move the leg. So every time they took a step, they would move the leg. And like therapists hated it because it was terrible on their back. They'd be crouching the whole time. It took a lot of strength. It was tough. Turned out that wasn't as effective as gait training. So if you're going to play the terror, pay the terrorist. If you're going to pay the therapist, the physical terrorist anyway, then, uh, you may as well have her up on her feet doing actual gait training. It turns out the best way to learn to walk is to walk. Go figure. It's called task-specific treatment. Huh. <laughs> you know, it's just like Sounds familiar. Here's one for you. Acupuncture may not be helpful for improving functional ambulation, spasticity, and activities of daily living for the lower extremity. Again, we're still talking about lower extremity. Here's one that may not surprise you. NeuroAid may not be beneficial for improving stroke severity. Huh. That's, that's interesting. It, it made it in here into the it, EBRSR. Yeah. How about this one? Have you ever heard of whole body vibration? Yeah. Yeah. Whole body vibration may not be beneficial for improving balance, functional ambulation, and muscle strength. How about them apples? How about them apples? Yeah. Is that going to come up again in what does work? I know that that's you don't want good, me to. No, that's a good question because I know for acupuncture, there are some things where it does work. Yeah, so I do you too. Can have that. You can have stuff that doesn't work for one thing, but works for another. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we should have done a comparison. What does this intervention work for? What doesn't it work for? That is the third one. So we have okay. what doesn't work, what does work, and what's the comparison for things that do work and don't work, and when do they work and not work? This is yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> How about this well, one? Stimulants may not be beneficial for improving motor function. Remember when stimulants were all the rage for people with brain injury because it was thought that they would somehow get better if they had, um, what's the big one for, for ADHD? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I do remember that now because one of the doctors at the hospital was interested in that. What was, it, what was that called? We'll edit this out so we sound smart. Okay, great. <laughs> There's a couple of them. Ritalin. Adderall. Ritalin. Yeah. Oh, Adderall. Yeah. Was that Ritalin's the Ritalin's the one that I seem to remember somebody talking about a lot at the hospital in brain for brain injury recovery. I think so because it was it was pretty it was a stroke center. So stimulants may not be beneficial for improving motor function, functional ambulation, and functional mobility. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And you know there was other things in the EBRSR that were more nuanced and I left them out. I try to get the more definitive stuff. Okay. Um, are you done with the leg? I am. 
And okay. I, um, eventually, I have one more story I'd like to tell you. But uh, yeah, so what do you got? Well, what's your story about? It's about hyperbaric. Oh, okay. I have some stuff on hyperbaric, but I have, I also found information on spatial neglect in Stroke Engine. And this was another thing that was a little confusing to me, but they have things that don't work at certain phases. So in the acute phase, eye patching, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, visual imagery, and visual scanning don't work. In the subacute phase, computer training, prism adaptation, virtual reality, and visual scanning don't work. But although with visual scanning, there was conflicting evidence. And then they have the statement that I don't really understand what it means. And maybe you can help me know what it means. Phase of recovery, not specific to one period. Does this just mean like throughout the phase? Is that what they're trying to say here? I'm maybe. sure. It sounds like they're trying to nuance something. Yeah. And it, it is a little confusing to me. But they say there's conflicting evidence for limb activation as an intervention, mental practice, sensory cueing, virtual reality, and visual scanning. Um, and in general, they're saying that verbal, visual, and auditory cues are not beneficial. And the and this opto- is, I'm sorry, kinetic. this is all for unilateral gl- neglect stuff? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I just um I was glad that that came up because that is a big problem following stroke and we need to use what works. But in that same uh page on Stroke Engine, if you scroll down, they actually have a chart showing you what works and what doesn't work and they they link more of the evidence there so you can choose appropriately for the person you're working with. Yeah, and that's Stroke Engine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, Spell- I have the link Ready, I'll put that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, it seems like the Stroke Engine and EBRSR is going to be in every show mm-hmm. note, but that's okay. Yeah, and they both do the same thing. It works, it doesn't work. You pick. <laughs> so, um, do you want to talk about hyperbaric? Yeah, I do. So, the commonality between stem cells neuro aid and hyperbaric is that it's the thing that i hear most from people that have had brain injury those three are the big three does this work this is a vulnerable population and they're susceptible to the magic bullet the thing that's going to get their loved one out of this morass the thing that's going to get themselves back on their feet and you know in clinical research we always make a big deal about the fact that these are vulnerable people inherent in the brain injury is a vulnerability. We protect people that are developmentally delayed. We should protect these people as well. And not scamming them is probably a good place to start. Hyperbaric is a bit of a scam. So hyperbaric is the breathing of pure oxygen while in a sealed chamber, but it's pressurized to one and a half to three times normal atmospheric pressure. So we have a certain amount of pressure just sitting here on earth. They increase that pressure. And at the same time, that pressure of oxygen is also pure oxygen, unlike what we breathe. Right now, I don't know, there's something in my throat and it's like, I don't think it's pure oxygen right here in Cincinnati. Now it's called hyperbaric oxygen therapy. 
Hyperbaric is used medically for a bunch of stuff legitimately. Decompression sickness, the bends. When somebody comes up too quickly out of the water, usually a deep sea diver, they get the bends. But So it's used for decompression sickness. For severe carbon monoxide poisoning, you can imagine how somebody who's breathing carbon monoxide, all of a sudden they don't have enough O2. It can't feed the cells. The blood cells can't bring can't bring oxygen molecules to every one of the trillions of cells in the body. And so if you do this pressurized oxygen, that's good for severe carbon monoxide poisoning. And then certain kinds of wounds really respond to being in this chamber with this pressurized oxygen. So here's the problem in a stroke. First of all, there's a real quack and a quack is a doctor that's not very good. There is a doctor that really pushes this for people with brain injury. And his uh, last name is Hemisphah, H-A-M-M-E-S-F-A-H. And do you happen to remember the Terry Schiavo case, brain injury? So she had anoxic brain injury. You remember? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'll go over it. So, but anoxic brain injuries are interesting and we should do a talk about them. I've, I've consulted with a couple of people that have had anoxic brain injuries and you know how, like, if you have a brain injury, you get hit in the head, that's where the injury is. You know, with a stroke, that's where the injury is. And even a hemorrhagic stroke, it's kind of misshapen, but it's kind of in one area of the brain, usually just one hemisphere. Well, anoxic brain injuries are they don't get enough oxygen. A lot of times, you know, they threw up and it got caught in their throat. They were drunk. But in Terry Schiavo's case, she had a, a heart problem and it just wasn't pumping for a while. And she got an anoxic brain injury. And the husband knew what her wishes were, and he had power of attorney. And he knew that she was considered to be in a vegetative state, and he knew she didn't want to live this way. So she was, he was ready to pull the peg tube, okay? And he had the legal right to do this. Okay. The parents intervened and said, you can't do this to our daughter. We know that she can come back from this. The parents said, okay, great. Um, And so the peg tube was taken out and then it was put back in. And this poor woman, meanwhile, the parents went in and they tried to do a video. They took like hours and hours of video to get like three minutes of what appeared to be Terry Schiavo responding to questions or whatever by turning her head. They said, oh, there's proof. And so there was a conflict and nobody knew what to do. It had to do with religious applications and right to life and right to death issues. It was this whole thing. Anyway, Hemisphar, this MD that was all about hyperbaric, got involved. And he went in front of the court and he said, I can cure. I can cure with hyperbaric stuff. And he's still saying this. Here's the deal about hyperbaric. In animal models, so in animal models, you can get a bunch of rodents, uh, mice or or rats, and you can give them the same stroke. You can get 50 of them exactly. They drill a hole through the head. They put them under first. They anesthetize them first. They drill a hole through their, their skull. And then they either shoot a chemical in there that cauterizes a portion of the vasculature, or they just take a little suction and they suck out a piece of the brain. And so you have 50 mice or rats that have had the same stroke. In that case, when they get hyperbaric immediately after their brain injury, they do a lot better, no doubt about it. But the thing about hyperbaric chambers is you can't get somebody out of it very quickly because if you do, they'll get the bends just as if they, the same thing as if they were, so you, so if it only works acutely and you have a person with an acute brain injury in this sealed thing, it becomes their coffin because if something goes south and they need help, you can't get in there without killing them. So there's that. To say that it works during the subacute phase or the chronic phase is absolute BS. Will it do harm? Hell no, it won't do harm. 
it'll probably be good for them generally speaking we should probably all have hyperbaric occasionally but it's not going to cure the brain injury and this guy is still in business and he's got a place down in it's called the uh it's changed the name newbauer hyperbaric neurological center it's someplace in florida um yeah so again wow. even with this if they come out with research that says it does work or they find a way to do it safely in people that are acute i'm all in i bet you're all in too that's yeah. what research does one of the points that was brought out in an article that i looked at is that even in people who have tbi there's little evidence that they have a good outcome and looking at the glasgow coma scale for people you know even if it increases by a few points if they're severely disabled it's not going to improve their quality of life so even if having hyperbaric oxygen increases their score by a few points it may not mean they'll ever be functioning so you know just something to think about with the severity of an injury that people have absolutely i've made it very clear to my wife that if i get to the point where you're talking about should we take the peg tube out or not please take it out make me comfortable give me lots of opioids nobody here lives forever in a hundred years nobody's even going to remember us enjoy I, it while you can right i have told my daughter i said you are the one in charge because you can make a decision i you know you just you see enough of that and i have seen family members walk all over patients wishes and then they get pissed off and then nobody can figure out why they won't talk to the family members well they're mad you didn't honor their wishes and you're right nobody's gonna live forever death is part of the life cycle no one here gets out of the live no. person yeah and you gave yeah. that you gave that um sort of power to, of attorney to your daughter i did oh that was smart i told you that um the more daughters that you have the less likely you are to be institutionalized after a brain injury I'm yeah i only have one i only have one too i'm thinking now i should have more it's kind of oh. an insurance policy against oh. i'm sorry Okay, I love you, Nicole. I wouldn't want another daughter. That was some yeah, See, I'm happy. That's the thing. We had this discussion before. <laughs> so they're harder to raise. And I kind of, it was true with my son and my daughter. My son bounces. Uh, he, he's fine no matter what happens. Um, my daughter is a little bit more um, intensive in terms of parenting needs. But on the back end, they keep you out of the old ladies' home. That's got to be worth something. Drop I don't know. You know, I had this conversation with my daughter about, I said, you know how a lot of people want in-law houses? I don't want one of those. I want a tree house. So tell your, tell your husband to build me a tree house. She goes, wait a minute. Who said anything about an in-law anything? <laughs> so, I, you know, like, come on, Nicole. So if you were in a tree house, how the hell are you going to get up there? Like, are you expecting well, them to do a ramp so that your wheelchair can go? I don't really think I'm going to need a wheelchair. There's a, there's a tree house in their backyard now, and I can get up there. And there's one of those uh, unstable bridges that you walk across Ooh. to another spot. Balance where training. Yeah. Look at you. I did it. And then there's a little zip line. And I did that too. Get right out. Oh my God. It's it's life changing. Man, you guys <laughs> Isn't it true like you you're a motorcycle enthusiast? I am. One of those mm -hmm. things. Yeah. yeah you're I just like, like you got a whole 3D thing going on. Yeah, not really. 
mild-mannered OT that likes yeah. to zip line and ride motorcycles. Welly, well, well, well. <laughs> okay, anyway. We've gotten silly. I think we maybe have. this is time for us to bid you all adieu. Okay. Can we Are we done? Class? <laughs> class dismissed. Class is out. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll hit you up on the flip side. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, that's back in the day. Hey, vinyl's coming back. Oh, the flip side. That's right. Yeah, that's what that had to do with okay. vinyl. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons, at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.